Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Uh, I'm very excited about the show today with Dr. Phil McGraw. I just wanted to let you all know, for those of you who are coming to the podcast for the first time, what we do here is kind of like an inspirational kind of podcast where we talk to our guests about their journey from humble beginnings until where they are now and the ups and downs of their life uh, along the way and how they uh, work through those uh, situations to become the best representation of themselves. So it's a, and we've talked to uh, network presidents like Doug Herzog at Comedy Central or Reggie Hudlin, who was the former president of BET or Chris Albrecht, the president of Stars and HBO and many different kinds of artists and executives in Hollywood who I perceive to be the real uh, unheralded stars of Hollywood who really make things happen and take many, many careers to the next level, including their own, and many artists to the levels that you see them in film, television, and all sorts of different content throughout the world that inspires you. And hopefully throughout our journey today will inspire you a little bit more 
as always, I love to uh, start off my shows uh, in a way that uh, has like sort of a six degrees of separation with my guest. Before I start this, I'll just say that I am so excited today because my guest today is uh, Dr. Phil McGraw. And for me, it's a long time coming because, you know, when you watch somebody your whole uh, sort of what seems like your whole life or part of your life, and then you end up face to face with them and you get to talk about things that normally they would be asking it's a great great honor and i'm excited about today and so my cold open story uh is interesting it's probably the first time i met uh, dr phil i have a client who um uh, has done a number of things with phil named kirk fox and um phil has been incredibly supportive of his career and uh, actually his uh, son is involved in producing a show that's on called the test but uh I was going to meet with him for the first time, uh, really about a sitcom idea that Kirk had had, um, around a tennis pro. And, um, I remember, uh, getting to the lot that day at Paramount. And normally when you get to a lot in a, in a studio, you know, you drive in, you have your pass, you give it to the security guard, he lets you in, you go valet your car or park and you walk to wherever you're going. Uh, that's normally the way it works, and it's always been that way, And but not this day. This day was something kind of a, like an anomaly because I, I get to the gate and I say where I'm going, which is stage 29, and Mr. Katz, yes, Mr. Katz, okay, um, listen, uh, just hang on one second. You're going to pull over to valet, and uh, there'll be somebody uh, to meet you at valet. Now, I've been to this lot hundreds of times. No one ever went to meet me at a valet and i i rolled down my window again i said as i was about to pull off i said who's who's going to meet me oh um dr phil's executive assistant is going to meet you um uh, barbara is going to meet you and i think to myself okay i'm, I'm gonna be met by somebody that's great and i'm thinking like i don't know what i'm thinking but i'm thinking you know it's hollywood it's the lot there's going to be a person who's going to come get me who's just like a maybe a, a lower level person in the business. Maybe somebody who's a, you know, on these lots, people are dressed like they're homeless. You know, it's like people walk around. You don't even know, you know, who's who's working under a crane or who's like a television president. So I go to valet and I, the, the valet says, oh, you're here for Dr. Phil. I'm like, yeah, is there a conspiracy here or something? It's like people are like, just like everybody knows what's going on here. I said, yes, don't worry, sir. We'll take care of your car. We're going to leave it right here up uh, in this front area. Don't worry. When you come down, you just come see me. We'll take care of it. Uh, you're going to Dr. Phil. I said, oh, okay, whatever. Uh, as I turn around from the valet, I hear Barry. And it's like the Southern Bell voice. And I look around. I'm not knowing what's going on because I'm expecting this person who probably is a, you know, a, a young intern or somebody like that who's doing whatever. And but it wasn't. It was a woman in a golf cart. Her name was Barbara. It's his executive assistant. And this woman is dressed like literally she's like Jackie Kennedy in Dallas. I mean, she is like. It's unbelievable. Like she could get in a hurricane and nothing would move. I mean, she's perfect at the way she's dressed or her jewelry, the way her shoes, but she's riding a golf cart and she's probably, you know, I, you, you don't mention a woman's age one way or the other, but suffice to say, 
she told me she'd been working with Dr. Phil for 25 years. So you can't imagine your surprise when you're being met in a golf cart by a woman who looks like she's ready to go to the Emmy Awards. And she's, it looks like a really a senior executive at a company. And she drives me up to uh, Phil's office and she's so wonderful and so nice. And her only goal was to make me feel comfortable and safe and warm and that there was an environment that was uh, a home environment. And from a moment she walked me in the door to the, um, the conference room where I waited for Phil, she just wanted to take care of me and wanted to make sure that my experience within the walls of Stage 29 Productions and the Dr. Phil show was one that was first class was like it was like you're walking into a four seasons and everything about it was was first class and that's the first impression that I had when I walked into those offices is the first impression I had when I went to the guard gate and the first impression I had when I met Barbara. But now I sat in this conference room waiting for the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Phil. And I, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. And because you see people on television, you don't know what they're going to be like or whatever it is. And he comes in and he, he, he shakes my hand and he looks me in the eyes and says, pleasure to meet you. And he shakes Kirk's hand and the other people in the room, which was his son, Jay McGraw, who produces the test and also the Emmy award winning show, The Doctors. And Phil sits down. And the one thing I noticed about him is that, uh, again, first class amazing presence, uh, like a force of nature. But the main thing that I noticed more than anything else that really shocked me is that he was exhausted. I mean, he was like, it literally was like I was sitting across from a man who was dressed well, had it all together, but looked like he literally ran the Boston Marathon, but not like he looked physically that way but just the way he was he was so tired and looked like he'd worked so hard and my first question to him was it's like um philip if, if you don't mind me asking uh, if you take oprah winfrey out of it you're like the number one talk show host for like the past 11 or 12 years and the past three years totally on top I, you know and i didn't expect that you would be so you know worn and so beaten up by all the work you were doing and he said Barry you know I have to get up a lot of days at five o'clock in the morning four o'clock in the morning I do these satellite radio tours I do satellite television tours I'm constantly doing press I have to make every interview the best representation of myself I can't just do the same thing all the time. I have to leave a little bit of myself and everything, and I have to exceed the levels that I do in each one in every interview so that people will know the level of the show. And I said, but Phil, you've been at the top of your game for like 11 or 12 years. Why would you have to do that over and over again every day? And he paused and he looked at me and he said, Barry, you don't get to be at the top without doing that kind of hard work. 
Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just... I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A., and he said, you know, i got to meet you. So I met the guy, and... Uh, I sat down and he told me that 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued, so I went online and I did some research And I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a, you know, medium, large company, whatever, and you have a thousand checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or $135K a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com. Schedule a live demo on their system. Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, 
You'll be glad you did. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard uh, with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited. My guest uh, today, I want to tell you a little bit about him. It's going to probably go on a little longer, this introduction, than normal because this guy has credits that are uh, like war and peace. But most importantly, he's the most well-known mental health professional in the world. He's been the leader in daytime talk for much of the past 12 years. Number two behind Oprah since its inception and number one for the past three years. He focuses in on uh, comprehensive mental health issues and more so than any show in the history of television. Uh, For 12 years, he's used a platform to make psychology accessible and understandable to the general public. Um, He talks about a lot of issues that he would call silent epidemics like bullying, drug abuse, domestic violence, depression, child abuse, suicide, and other various forms of severe uh, mental illness as well. Um, His show is incredibly educational. It's inspiring. He's been recognized by the American Psychological Association uh, and, uh, and was honored with a presidential citation for the work that he's done. He's received 26 Emmy Award nominations, won five PRISM Awards, as well as the MAD Media Award, and he's won the Gracie Award, been honored for that four times. He has done over 2,000 hours of television, which is almost unprecedented. He's the author of seven number one New York Times bestselling books that have been published in 39 languages in over 33 million copies in print. Unbelievable. Probably one of the most proud things that he does is he's established the Dr. Phil Foundation, which is a nonprofit charitable organization funding many worthy projects benefiting disadvantaged children and families. He's a devoted uh, husband to his wife, Robin, and his two kids who we're going to talk about as well, who are in the business and uh, are really, really special. So please welcome, if you will, my guest, I'm so excited, Dr. Phil McGraw. What's up, man? (laughs) My dad always said, the more you've done in your life, the shorter your introduction should be. So I'm apparently a punk. (laughs) She's been talking about me for 30 minutes. I'm apparently a punk. I remember you saying something to me about one thing your father said that that before I get into this, and I'll probably have to edit this out, but... uh we were taking a television meeting and you took this great meeting and you spoke in this particular meeting so infrequently but when you spoke the things you said were just like so powerful it was like it was like these pinpoint jabs of Muhammad Ali and i got outside and i said phil I, you know and that meeting was so odd you you really didn't say much, but it was. It seemed like it was really valuable. And you said, my dad always had an expression. He said something to the effect of, never miss an important opportunity to shut the f*** up. That's it. <laughs> yeah, he reminded me of that on a regular basis, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I want you to, I, I like to start at the beginning. So like um, um, where you grew up and what happened, you know, everybody starts at zero, zero. The one thing I like to say all the time is like as a person, you know, what's, what's fascinating to sit across from you, you've controlled your own destiny. 
you're in control of your own destiny and all through your career, which we'll talk about, you created companies or things where you were in control and the control about everybody else around you was sort of left behind. But when you start, you're born into a family as you interview so many people on your show. They don't have a choice of who their mother and father is, where they grow up, and they started zero, zero. So tell me about where you started, where you were, what happened, and what was the first thing that happened that let you know that you would be successful in business? Well, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> I was born in a log cabin in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> Walked uphill to school both ways, was uphill. Uh, no, I was, you know, I, I was uh, one of four kids. I have three sisters. And um, my mom and dad were beyond blue collar. I mean, that was their goal in life would be to ever... Uh, get up to middle class or blue collar. Uh, but, uh, you know, we always had a roof over our head. We always had uh, food to eat. And um, being the only boy, um, I kind of had a probably different experience going through than my sisters did. Uh, but, you know, my dad was um, a football coach. And in fact, the first time he ever had a job as head football coach, it was Vanita, Oklahoma. And kickoff was at 7.30. And I was born at 7.15 and disrupted his first ever game <laughs> as head football coach. Um, Did he resent you forever after that? <laughs> I, I, he's, I don't think he ever forgave me for it. Uh, I don't know whether they won or lost the game, but I, I was born and... Uh, uh, he was a coach at the time, and then, you know, we moved around a lot, actually. I, it was almost like a military rhythm. Um, I went to first, second, and third grade in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and fourth, fifth, and sixth in Denver, and seven, eight, nine in Oklahoma City, and 10, 11, 12 in Kansas. So it's like every three years we moved. So I was always kind of the new kid. And you know uh, what's interesting? Up. I always like to talk about how, like, again— these control things, you're in a situation where you're a kid and your parents just come to you and say, we're moving. You're like, well, I like to stay here. I'm sorry, we're moving. So again, there's no control over your life at that point. Yeah. And so I think that has a lot in shaping somebody to want to, to take that point in their life where they go to the next point. So what? Yeah, it, it, it really, you know, when you're the new kid, you don't, you don't have those longstanding relationships and that peer group. And um, I know at there was a point after my freshman year uh, when my dad had gone back and actually gone to school to become a psychologist. And um, we he had to go to Kansas City to do his internship at Kansas City General. And he was just going to go by himself for the year and do that. But I had... Um, gotten in a little trouble and one thing and another in in that last year and he thought you know you need to be with your father not down here with all these women so he and I um, went to Kansas City and um, that was kind of a defining move for me because we went to Kansas City but nowhere in particular in Kansas City um, we had nowhere to live. We had nowhere to stay. We had, um, so where were you living? Well, um, when we first got there, he was 
he registered in and then was gone uh, from there. I think he had to go back to the university and finish something. And that was in the summer before I started my sophomore year. And I I was homeless at that time. I mean, I was just living on the street. Amazing. And then we finally got the money to get a room at the Y, at the YMCA in Kansas City. And I don't even think it's still there, but it was downtown Kansas City. And it was like five bucks for the week. Of course, this was in like 65. It was five bucks for the week. And uh, so we stayed there uh, for a while. And then finally, we got an apartment right before school started, uh, just a one-bedroom apartment. And uh, But we didn't have money for de- deposits, so we had no utilities. So we had no electricity, and it gets dark at like 4.30. Uh, so that made for some long night. No television, no radio, no lights, no nothing. Uh, and then it got pretty cold in Kansas City uh, as we moved on. But it took about three months. We finally scraped up the money for deposits for electricity, so we were able to get the electricity turned and on. And what were you doing while he was doing this stuff? Well, you know, I, I started school. Uh, you know, high school as a sophomore, uh-huh. and uh, we got an apartment right near the high school, so I was able to to walk to school. Now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, now I'm trying to figure out how you did this because I believe, as a teenager, you had an interest in in flying planes, correct? And didn't I you did. didn't you get a pilot's license while you were a teenager? I did. I got it very early on. Uh, how did you do that? Well, when he finished his internship. Then he was able to get a job, you know, like a real job as a doctor in a practice. And uh, he worked for a psychiatrist up there. So things changed dramatically once he got through with all that and could get a job. He went from like 300 a month to making $25,000 a year, which back then was not that bad. And so then I was able to, you know, do some things that I, I, it was a big difference from just a few years before. But you're, what's interesting is you're, you're following him, you're, you're left, you're, the rest of your family's back where they were, and you're essentially, like you said, homeless, but then when your first goals that meant something to you was flying a plane, and that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, well, he was a pilot, and, um, you know, after he got through with his coaching stint, he was, um, uh, he was a tool pusher in the oil business where he'd sell bits, drill bits and stuff. And when we lived in Denver, uh, all the drilling that was going on in the Rocky Mountains, if a drill bit would break, you had to get one up there right quick. And that was his job. And he was a pilot, and he would fly these drill bits into these drilling sites up in the Rocky Mountains. And I would go with him a lot. So and I started— And were they small planes? Or oh, what? yeah. You know, small single-engine airplanes. So I started flying with him. And, you know, by the time I was 10 or 11, I was pretty good behind the wheel. I never flew by myself, but always with him. But, but when you were 10, he allowed you to get in the cockpit and, oh, yeah. and, and fly the plane. Sure. Well, but with him right there, you know, I, but I made some flights where he never touched the controls. He just talked me through it after a while. So it was in my blood from very early on. Now, thinking back when your sons were 10, would you allow them to fly a plane with you in the cockpit? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, we it. did. And uh, Jay... Uh, got his pilot's license his junior year in high school uh, as well. So he's a pilot, and uh, he doesn't 
you know, neither one of us fly much anymore, but we've done it a lot. That's amazing. So, okay. So you're, so you're now your, your father's doing a little bit better, but you're still not living, uh, you're still living a humble existence. What's the next step where you, 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 you feel like you want to become more of an entrepreneur or do something that where you're more in, in charge of things? Well, you know, I've always kind of figured a way to just get along on, on your own. And, you know, my dad was a bad alcoholic and when he was drinking, you, you get very self-reliant. I mean, you just depend on yourself to take care of things. And so I never really had much in the way of jobs after my teen years, you know, I threw a paper route and stuff like that. I was a car hop at A and W root beer stand <laughs> um, until they put everybody on skates. And <laughs> I have the worst balance of anybody I've ever met. I have to concentrate to sit here on this couch right now without falling over. But you're a great athlete. You play but tennis every balance. day. Yes, that's true. But not balance. Um, I remember in high school one day we were doing trampoline in gym. We had to like turn a flip. I said, you can send me to the office, It'll make me run a mile, do whatever you want, but I'm not breaking my neck for some idiot gym teacher. I know what I cannot do, and I cannot do that, so I didn't do it. But um, So, you know, that was, that was never my long suit. But um, I, I always just kind of figured a way uh, to do something entrepreneurial after high school, uh, I never really had a job. I was always doing some kind of business, some way, somewhere, and uh, I like that better. It's it, it's you not mean your own. Money. In other words, your own business, whatever right. it was, mowing lawns or right. whatever, whatever it was, it you was. did your own thing. Yeah. And here you're also obviously an adult child of alcoholic parent, and you're in that situation, which is brutal because again, it's for everybody who goes through it. It's, it's, you know, when I, I had a moment with a, a guest who was here, uh, Neil Brennan, who's the co-creator of the Chappelle show. And one of the things he said, which blew me away, he said, he's, a, he's the youngest of 10 children. And he said, his father was an alcoholic. And he said, when he, his father was dying, he finally had the courage to go and ask his dad, look, dad, it, you know, it just appears like, like you don't, you don't love us. And his dad paused and says, you're right, Neil. I never did love you. I never did love all of you. But then when I asked him, which was fasting, I thought of this meeting you. I asked him, I said, you have so much success because of that thing that happened. That drove you to be great. That drove you to, to go to the next level because of the things you went through as a child. Would you trade your dad saying you love you? for all the success you've had. And without missing a beat in a second, he said, yes, I take love over any success. Yeah. And so as you're telling that story, I think to myself about what you must have been going through and how you broke through. And because normally there's a tendency for a child to either drink and follow the path. Like you said, you're a pilot, your son's doing pilot stuff. Normally a, ch a parent drinks and a lot of times it's in the genes. Was it in your genes? Well, you know, I, I I think for some reason, I think people are either psychologically minded or they're not. I mean, it's just like some people have an eye for fashion or decor or something like that, and some people don't. Um, you know, my wife can walk in and look at a room and 
she can have it looking like a million bucks in no time at all. And to me, it's just, I don't know, it's just a room. I, I don't see it. <laughs> I think it's the same way psychologically. And for some reason, I think I've always been psychologically minded. And I, I know at the time I was going through that, I, you know, I didn't, at the time you don't think, boy, do I have a bad deal here? It just, it's all, you know, that anonymous poem, children learn what they live is true. Uh, I never thought I had a particularly bad deal or whatever. I just, I knew that it was different because like I, I wouldn't bring friends home because you never know what you're going to find when you open that door. And so given that, I, I was different in that I would go to other people's houses and it didn't appear chaotic <laughs> at my house. It was chaotic and you never knew if he was going to be sober or drunk and if the lights were going to be on or not on or what, you know, you just never know. So uh, I knew it was different in that regard, but you know, you just, you, you, you get along. It's, it's, um, it's, I never took it personally. Uh, I just knew he had a problem with that. And it just is, this was what it was, you know, you just deal with it and go on. Did you ever utilize any of the skill set you have now that came naturally to you with him and ever have a sit down with him at any moment of a solemn moment and say something that you might say to somebody today? Well, I, in two ways, it's impacted me su significantly. I'm very results-oriented. And when I talk to people, I, I look, let's change what you're doing so we can change the outcomes. And I just think common sense isn't common enough anymore, and that's the approach I take. And you, know, you get that when you're poor. When you grow up poor, you're very results-oriented. You always know if somebody's been poor, you know, you'd think poor people say you don't work, you don't eat. That person's never really been poor <laughs> because a poor person would say, if you don't work and get paid today, you don't eat today. <laughs> like if you work and get paid in two weeks, you won't be here in two weeks. <laughs> you got to get paid today. I'm results oriented. You, you, you push A, you get B. You push C, you get D. And there is a direct connection between the choices you make and the consequences you get. And I learned that very early on um, because this stuff about do you get an allowance? <laughs> yeah, you get an allowance. No, you go work and bring money home so you can put it in the kitty because collectively then we have a place to stay and we have a place to eat. So I became very results oriented and that affects who I am today. I'm very results oriented. I, I totally get that. Um, so, you know, I, I think part of that, uh, is that, and then, I, you know, I, I am a strong believer that we create our own experience. You know, you can, you can be a victim or not, but you create your own experience. And, um, it's interesting though, you started off, you were a victim. And then you became somebody who wasn't the victim. Yeah, and I never really felt like a victim. You know, because like I say, at the time, you don't know. You don't know that it's any better or worse or different than anybody else. No, but looking back now, you know. Mm hmm Looking back now. Um, but I, I think you have a choice. You can, you know, that's, that's the choice of legacy. 
I've chosen to carry some things forward from my father, for example, that I think were real positives. Uh, and I've left behind the things that weren't. Like, he was the hardest working guy I ever met. I'm serious. If the guy, if he wasn't drinking, there, there's no hill he wouldn't climb. I mean, he was a hard, hard worker. Um, and I got a real good work ethic from him. Um, he, he just, um, he instilled that in me. Uh, then I saw the drinking, and I haven't had a drink since high school. I just don't drink. I, I've seen what it can do, and I don't like it. So I left that behind. You have a choice about what part of the legacy you carry on and what part you leave behind. And and I and I still preach that today. I mean, I'm probably genetically predisposed to alcoholism because of him. There's no probably. I am. I mean, we, we know that research-wise. And I've been real careful with my boys because sometimes – it's like if my father is an alcoholic, so I choose not to drink, then they never see what it can do, and they're genetically predisposed to have the problem. So I've had to specifically tell them, you don't see the danger because you don't see me drink. But let me tell you, you are set up genetically to have a problem. Don't fall in that trap. So, I mean, I've had to point that out because there's been a generational skip there uh, in terms of doing that. So... I was at a party uh, the other day with my kids, and I'm not a big drinker, I, but I'm not like you. I don't I haven't gone since high school, but you know maybe there's a drink uh, every month or two months or something. But my kids have never really seen me have a drink, and I went to the table where the bar area was, and there was just one a beer, a cold beer, like in the ice, and I just thought, you know. Why not? It's just one beer, and I I took it out, and before it hit the table, my eight-year-old and nine-year-old ran over and grabbed the beer out and threw it in the trash and said, Daddy, don't do it. (laughs) And it made me feel good because I felt that, you know, uh, hopefully that'll last uh, to the next time. So keep Well, both of my boys drank, I can tell you. <laughs> They're they unafflicted by the teetotaler gene. They, both of them drink. They, not to excess, but they certainly uh, know how to party. <laughs> so tell so tell me to the next step. So what what business did you start getting into where you realized that I'm never looking back. I'm never going to be homeless. I'm never not going to have money in my pocket. And I'm never going to have to be beholden to anybody else. Well, you know, I knew that really early on because there was a lot of chaos in my home. My mother didn't much cotton to his drinking. And so there was a lot of conflict in that regard. And like I said, I had three sisters and they were they were wild I mean, I think both of them got married at 14 for the first time. I mean, it's just a chaos after chaos. And so I started becoming, you know, kind of dependent, self, self-reliant self very early on. Um, I remember asking my little sister one time, do you suppose it's possible we got mixed up at the hospital? <laughs> I mean, these people are like... They're 14 and getting married, and I, I what, what, what? It didn't seem now, right did to me. That, so now I became did, very self-reliant. Did that behavior 
was that part of the reason why your 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 dad wanted you to come with him? Because if your sisters were marrying at fourteen, that might mean that you might think, hey, it's okay to go out with fourteen year olds and hang out with fourteen year old girls. And yeah, well, so is that why they sent you uh, there? Because they were worried about you going, and they, they thought they could save you, and that they no, couldn't save I them. No, I think he was trying to save them from my influence <laughs> <laughs> by that point because I was uh, getting a little rowdy. So I can't blame that on them, but. Um, you know, I, it, uh, one thing that I always believed is that knowledge is power. And I, so I, I always saw the value of education. And again, that's something my dad went back to school after a long time. And, um, so I saw the value of education, and so I really threw myself into that. I didn't like school, but I, it was a means to an end for me. And that education, like, were you going to school? I know you were going to school for the similar kinds of things you're working on now and that you've worked on throughout your career, but what made you decide that that was the area that you wanted to go into it? Did the evidence show that you weren't really thinking anywhere in those terms what was the first thought that came into your mind like hey well yeah, i'd I like to do this i couldn't decide whether i wanted to go to medical school law school or into psychology and I, we had a good friend that was a physician and i spent some time uh with him in his office a couple of days and immediately decided i don't want to do this i mean it just seemed to me like highly repetitive and everybody was sick and I just thought, oh, my God, this would just be horrible. And so I didn't want to do that. Um, I thought about law school and all and was really pulled into that. Um, but then uh, what I wound up doing, which I really, really enjoyed, is I went the psychology route. But then I started a company. Uh, called Courtroom Sciences, Inc., CSI, before there was a CSI. That's, and that was kind of the marriage of the two. That was psychology and the law. So for over 12 years, I just practically lived in a courtroom. But where did the idea come from of this new kind of concept for an, a profession? There weren't, there weren't companies like this. Where did you no, come up with the blueprint for this idea? There, there was some of that going on, but not a whole lot. Um when when you go to school you, in psychology you you declare majors and stuff just like anything else and mine was clinical and then I also did behavioral medicine so I kind of did two cores side by side um, and my specialty within that was brain and central nervous system and you know if if somebody gets injured and they break a hip or an arm you know it's fifty thousand dollars in damages you pay them and you go on if somebody gets a brain injury, you're now talking a life plan. It can be millions of dollars. So they start hiring experts to testify at trial. And so I spent a lot of time testifying as an expert um, in cases where you know people would be injured and that sort of thing. Um, and because I was a pilot, I had an interest in aviation law. And so several years at CSI, I worked on major airline crashes throughout the country. Uh, I think the first one I did was Air Florida, uh, which was back in 1981 when they hit the 13th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C., coming out of there. 
Um, and then I've worked on many, many since then, you know, Delta. What is it you're trying to do? Because obviously, again, you created your own company. There was no company. Uh, there might have been a few that were a little bit similar, but you created your own thing. You were the guy who owned the company. It was you, and, and you gained the experience through time that they would come to you because of obviously the great work you did in the beginning. So well, it started out where I was testifying, but then the lawyers would say, you know, you did a really good job testifying. They're going to have an expert to counter you on the other side. Can you help us design a cross-examination for that person? And I'd say, sure. And then it was like, well, and you know, our corporate representative, he's like really nervous. Do you think you could get help him to testify? And so it, it kind of shifted around where I was spending more time working on the case other than testifying than I was actually testifying. And so I kind of started doing just that. I said, look, I can hire, we can hire and I can prepare someone to deliver my message. And then I can help you with your problems in these other areas. And it just kind of morphed into that. And that got so busy and so demanding that I had to make a choice uh, to shut down my practice and to shut down everything else and do just the litigation consulting because it was taking more than 100% of my time. An example of something like when you were hired for the airplane crash. Explain to our audience who's hiring you and what is the goal at the end of the day that they want to accomplish 100% by having you come in. Well, you understand when an airplane crashes, you can't hit the ground and not be in violation of regulations because you have to keep an airplane a thousand feet above the ground. So just by the very fact that you impact the ground, you've violated a regulation, which means they almost always point to pilot error or um, you know, some kind of malfeasance by the operator, the air carrier itself. And um, like, I was a declared pilot advocate, and so I worked as a consultant to the Airline Pilots Association in Washington, D.C., and I would go in and evaluate the pilot's behavior. We'd get the cockpit voice recorders, which give you the last 30 minutes of the flight where you can hear what was going on. You get the flight logs, the engine instrument recorders, you find out what was going on with the airplane and the pilots, who did what to when, you get all the traffic with um, chatter between the tower and approach and all of that. And, you know, somebody had to do human engineering to figure out who did what and why. Accidents don't just happen. There are accident enabling factors. And my job was to figure out what those were, look at the human engineering side of it, and present the best possible defense given the terrible outcome. When you saw the last Denzel Washington movie, how accurate was it? Pretty accurate. I, yeah, I don't know about flying that airplane upside down <laughs> like that, but I know all the investigation from NTSB and all of that. Um, it, it gets very intense. And you know, there's a lot of emotion because lives are lost and injuries and money, and it's just a, a quagmire. Those things often last for years and years. Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, through this uh, work that you were doing, uh, that you started doing full-time, wasn't there some kind of situation that was your first introduction to uh, Oprah Winfrey where you were working on some kind of a case that, that she was involved in? There's uh 
Yes. Um, Oprah got sued um, by the beef industry, some representatives of the of the cattle and beef industry. Um, in what came to be known as the mad cow case, the mad cow disease. And um, she was sued up in Amarillo, Texas, which is cattle country. So here you've got uh, this billionaire woman uh, sued behind enemy lines for disparaging beef. And um, so uh, I was retained uh, as part of that defense team. I imagine a lot of people in Amarillo, Texas were not very happy with you because you had gone to school in Texas, correct? Well, here's the thing. Um, Oprah, a lot of people in Amarillo loved Oprah, but a lot of people up there were impacted by the cattle industry, obviously. Um, I thought it was a bogus but dangerous lawsuit from the beginning. And, you know, I worked with Oprah for a couple of years leading up to trial um, because we conducted mock trials, focus group research. We did all kinds of jury profiling. um, And we were always present at trial as well. And, in fact, in that case, uh, myself and lead counsel Chip Babcock, who's the premier First Amendment lawyer in the country, the two of us plus Oprah and uh, a few of her key people all lived in a bed and breakfast out on the edge of Amarillo for a couple of months out there. So, I mean, you know, it's interesting. You can't, you know, you don't, you don't imagine that somebody who's at the height of their career in television, you can't imagine how anybody like a sniper can just attack at any given time and you can't ignore it and you have to give everything you can to it. You have to give the same dedication you give to your success in business to the success in defending yourself or else one person like a sniper in war can just take everything down. And so you don't, you don't even, you can't even conceive, no one in their audience could ever conceive of Oprah taking hours upon hours of rehearsing and mock trials and things, but that's what has to happen to win. Well, it was a dangerous case. And uh, although I thought it was a, a frivolous case, it was still a dangerous case, but uh, Oprah, you know, I believe the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And that's, that's true of her. She, um, once she said, you know, she asked me what I thought about the case from a jury standpoint. And I said, I, I think you can win it, but it's dangerous. And, um, she said, I've got some lawyers telling me I should settle. Certainly not Chip Babcock, but some other lawyers telling her she should settle. She said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think the line at the Sue Oprah window is going to get a whole lot shorter if you stand up and say, bullshit, I'm not paying extortion money. I didn't do anything wrong here, and I'm not paying you a dime. And you, you fight these people to verdict, and and we did, and won. And the line at the Sue Oprah window got a lot shorter. I mean, people realize, you know, you're not going to get nuisance money. Uh, out of her. I think she did exactly the right thing. And obviously she saw, like everybody else saw uh, in the beginnings of your business when you were testifying that you did great work, you were prepared, you had were goal-oriented, and she saw that in you, obviously. And was that what led to 
the opportunities for television? Well, we got to know each other really well because, as I say, I worked with her for two years before the trial, then during the trial. Um, and, you know, she said the night the verdict came, the day the verdict came in, we did a show that night from Amarillo that aired the next day. And um, that was the first time I was ever on the Oprah show, and it had nothing to do with anything other than the Had trial. you ever been on television on any kind of a no. show like that before? No. So your first time on television, and it's the day before the trial. Verdict so came in, and we went and did a show. After the verdict. After the verdict. And were you, I ask you this because I, I don't picture this as being a quality that you have, but were you anxious? No, not in the least. It, it was irrelevant to me. I mean, being on some daytime television show, how irrelevant was that? To, I mean, I, I worked all day. I, I hadn't, I had never seen an episode of Oprah from start to finish in my life. I mean, I knew who she was. And then when I met her, I fastly understood why America was in love with her. She's charming and charismatic and intelligent and funny and all of those things. But you know what's interesting? When she met you, she saw a mirror because that's what you are. Well, she, you know, she has a, a way of seeing things and, and creating things. And, I, you know, that first night I was on her show, I mean, it was one of the kindest things anybody's ever said to me. She was introducing Chip, the lawyer, and this one, that one. And, and then she said, now I want to introduce you to Dr. Phil McGraw. This is the man that gave myself back to me because I lost myself in this process and he gave myself back to me. Wow. Which was a very kind thing to say. And then, you know, the first time she had me on the show as a guest after that, she said, you know, I've always told you, promised you that if I found things that I thought were helpful and valuable, whether it was a pair of shoes or a book or a whatever, I, I would share it with you. And I, I found him, and I want to share him with you because at a real low spot in my life, um, he had the strength to stand up and tell me how it was when I needed to hear it, and I want him to tell you how it is just like he told me. So here he is, and off we went. And so it goes. The rest is history, I guess. So when did you know that you – we're going to make your mark in television, and your days at CSI were numbered. Well, what yeah. happened? Like, what was the moment that happened? <clears throat> was there a show that that went on and then just went crazy, and everybody was writing you, or everybody was requesting you, or what? Or somebody, Oprah called and said the ratings for this show went through the roof. Like, what was it? Well, you know, it had been a few months, and she called and said. Um, uh, uh, a producer called from the show and said, Oprah wanted me to call you. We're doing a show about such and such, and she wants you to come be the, the expert, the guest on the show. And um, I, the producer called and said that and told me when it was. And I said, look, I really appreciate it, um, but I can't do it. I'm going scuba diving. <laughs> and... But I can give you the name of somebody that I think would do a really good job and and just, you know, let them do it. And she kind of was real silent and said, well, 
okay. <laughs> um, and then, and then uh, a little bit later, the phone rings again, and it's Oprah. <laughs> she says, "You don't say no. What, you know, what are you? What are you doing?" I said, "I'm going scuba diving." She said, "Well, how about we wait till you get back?" And I said, "Okay, we'll do that." <laughs> the power of no, and, and um, she was very gracious. And I came back and went and did the show, and um, it certainly made waves. Um, it certainly made waves. Some people loved it, and some people were outraged by it. It was like, what, what was what was the subject matter where they were raving, and what happened to polarize it? Well. <laughs> They, our very first guest was a stripper. Now that, you're talking about the first guest that you had when you that were I doing, interacted with on Oprah. Oh, okay, got it. It was a stripper. Uh huh. And it was a very nice girl, but she was a stripper. And she had written in this letter, this long letter about, I want to change my life and I want to show women to have self-respect and stand up for themselves and, you know, be what God made them to be and blah, 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 and all of that. And I remember at the end of reading the letter, uh, a lot of the audience was crying and clapping and all of that. And Oprah said, well, so what do you think? And I said, well, I tell you what, before you save the world, how about we just get you a job where you keep your clothes on? <laughs> you know, let's just do, let's take this a step at a time. Before you save womankind, let's just see if we can get a job where you keep your pants on. And, and I'm curious, that's one of the things in that, that situation, like, because she's probably making probably four times more money than she would make in a job initially where she would, she would get where she kept her clothes on. Right. How did you go through that issue when she talked about that? Like, Well, she, you know, she said she wanted to change, and but she wanted to change the world at the same time. And I said, well, okay, come on. How about we get you 30 days in a, in a job where you stay dressed, and then, then we can save womankind. And everybody's like, holy shit, what did he just say? I mean, um, I mean, that was just what I was thinking. I was just like, you know, if you really want to do this, don't set yourself up for failure here. You're setting up all these lofty goals. That isn't going to work. Be honest with yourself. Take care of you first, then we'll go on. And I wasn't trying to be unkind. That was just, that was just the truth of it, right? Um, and so people were like shocked. And so I come back for my second show, and the producers have told me, wow, boy, did, did you make waves? I mean, that was great. I mean, you made sparks. People are talking about it. But some people were really offended at your candor. And so I saw Oprah before the show, and I said, well, I understand a lot of people were really offended by my candor. What do you think? She said, turn up the heat. <laughs> turn up the heat. You were much easier on her than you were on me. She said, turn up the heat. I'll tell them it's okay. Don't worry about it. And so I just went on and did what I did. I love that. I love that. That's like, you know, you can tell great people when they do things like that and they support the artist. I remember when I was at Saturday Night Live and uh, Dane Cook was hosting one of the shows and he did the dress rehearsal and he did a routine in the dress rehearsal, which was this like 
a hard R-rated routine about how he was naked uh, coming from the bedroom, wanted to get something to eat, and he saw the cashews on the counter, and he took a cashew and put it on his whatever and uh, bent it down and shot it in the air and ate it you know, out of the air. And I remember the censors were like going crazy they like literally kicked in the door yelling and screaming at me whatever he cannot do that he's not going to do that it's not going to happen and lorne michaels came in probably like a half hour later when i asked him like what do we do these sensors or what 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 should we do i, I feel bad and then so i don't want dane to be upset and i want him to have a good performance and lorne in his ultimate wisdom looked at me and said let me take care of it barry you have him do whatever he needs to do. And that's the kind of uh, great producer and great artist that, that, that helps people become what they want to be. Uh, you know, Michael Wright from TBS, who's one of the presidents of TBS and TNT, he always said this great expression. He says, hi, and people asked him, how, how do you deal with artists and talent? And what's your biggest thing that you would say that you would live by, your mantra? And he says very easy you hire great people that you have confidence in and you get the fuck out of the way yeah and uh and that's a that's an amazing story uh so well you know there's there'll never be you know everybody talks about you know the new oprah and um you know i was she was number one forever right mm -hmm. and um now i'm number one and Reporter was asking me one time, like, you know, Dr. Phil, what's the secret to success? You, you've been on the air so long, and then, then you become number one. You know, what was the main thing that you did? And I said, what? "Are you kidding me? She quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main thing. I've been number two forever, and then she quit. And now, what do you mean? What did I do? Um, I didn't talk her out of quitting. That's what I did. What, what do you mean? I, you know, I, I have no illusions about that. Um, well, I'd say a little hard work had something to do with it. So, take me through. How, when did you get the call from Oprah saying, "Look, I want to." Uh, I want to do a show with you. I want you to, I want to help you move forward for your own show and take me through that process up until your first show. Well, you know, I was doing, uh, it got to where I was doing the Oprah show every Tuesday. Uh, there was just the standing. I did, I, I did, Sometimes not on Tuesday, and a lot of people and a lot of them. people don't know this in our audience. They think when they see somebody on television, "Wow, this guy is a multimillionaire. God, he must be making so much money doing these television appearances." Meanwhile, you do an appearance on Oprah, and you get like five hundred and thirty-seven dollars and fifty cents every time you go on. Yeah, but it's it's the impact of the audience that you go to that yeah. means it's not the money. Of course, and I, I was doing it every Tuesday, and um. When I did it the very first show, um, it did get a lot of attention. And every production company in the country came out of the woodwork calling saying, you need to do your own show. You're a breath of fresh air. You're whatever. You need to do your own show. And when I would get those, I would just take them and give them to Oprah the next time I was up there and say all this stuff came in. Um, and she said, look, if you ever want to do your own show, just tell me. And Harpo will do it. We'll, we'll do your own show for you if you want to do it. Just tell me. And I said, okay. 
And I didn't say anything the first year. I didn't say anything the second year. I didn't say anything the third year. I didn't say anything the fourth year. Um, and then one day I was, I'd usually do two shows every time I was there. I'd do the A show and the B show. And it was between shows. And I was walking down the hall at Harpo Studios. And she sticks her head out the, her office door and says, hey, come in here, dummy. <laughs> she said, it's time. <laughs> uh, you know, I told you to tell me if you want to do your own show. You've never said anything. I'm telling you, it's time. Uh, all the mail, all of the downloads of transcripts and scripts, um, the, the majority of it is for when you're on. It's time. You need to do your own show. And I said, okay. Um, so I went home and as corny as it sounds, kind of had a beaver cleaver family meeting with Robin and the two boys and said, you know, here's the deal. Um, I can go do this, but it's to me, this is a family decision. It's one of those things that takes four yeses and one no. Um, if anybody doesn't want to do it, then I'm good not to do it. If everybody wants to do it, then we'll go do it. So it had to be like a jury trial, a unanimous yeah. vote. And One person said no, it would be no. That's yeah. that's interesting. Is that how you? Is that how the family dynamic runs in the McGraw household? Where well, it's like on things that affect everybody, you know, big family decisions. Yes, I mean. Like when I said that, I looked around and Robin was getting boxes and packing them because she, she loves change. I mean, she loves change. Uh, you know, nobody's voted. She's getting boxes, putting shit in them and everything. Um, and you are so, you know, think about you that people, I don't think people understand how funny you are just being around you all the time. But Joe Jay was like, yeah, hell, you know, why not? And Jordan, you know, he was just going into high school and, you know, he was captain of the basketball team. He was captain of the baseball team. He had all of his friends and all of that. And he's kind of shy in some respects. And so I thought, you know, he may go, hey, you know, I got my life happening here, man. You know, pull up and leave. But he said, Shit, let's do it, man. Let's go. I said, well, what about your friends? He said, I'll make friends out there. Um, so all four of them said, let's rock and roll. By the way, a funny story. It, that was right when Jay was getting ready to start law school. And he was trying to decide between Pepperdine and SMU. And I talked him into SMU. It was right after that that we moved to L.A. to start doing the show. And he said, oh, I get it. Okay, yeah, no, go to SMU. We're leaving. <laughs> so... So he stayed on for three more years and finished uh, law school at SMU. That's amazing. So when do you know in your mind you're not turning back? This show is like, did you know from the very first taping that there's no way this show is going to fail? Or did you have any doubts at all in your mind? <laughs> well, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about television as an industry. And when we decided to do the show... Nobody bothered to tell me that the previous 80 had failed. <laughs> you know, you think of all the shows. I don't know how many it is, but that so many shows had failed. But I never really had any doubts about it at all. I mean, I was, the, the at the time, the only graduate from Oprah University. I mean, you, 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 you go to school at Oprah University, it is the absolute gold standard. You learn how this stuff is done. You learn why it works. 
um, you learn what you need to focus on and, and what you don't. And, and that's the thing I always say for any artist or anybody in the business or anybody even outside of the business is like, you have to go in and your body of work has to make people want to take you to the next level. And what's amazing from Oprah University, you could probably say in the whole scheme of the show, I bet there were at least a thousand guests on her show, at least a thousand. I'm talking about professional guests, not people who are troubled, professional guests going on and giving their opinion in a segment. And one person graduated from Oprah University, and that was you. Yeah, and I'm I'm very proud that she had that belief in me. But make no mistake, um, you know I, I'm no dummy. I get that. But without Oprah, there's no Doctor Phil. I mean, you cannot uh, you cannot overestimate the O factor. Uh, in launching a television show or a career. I mean, the fact that, you know, that's like the good housekeeping seal of approval on steroids, right? Absolutely. But I want to, I wanna, if you don't mind me going to uh, a little bit toe-to-toe with you on this, okay? There's a lot of people who come become successful and have successful talk shows that don't have Oprah behind them. Ellen is successful. She didn't have Oprah to launch her. There's television shows. People say HBO, the gold standard. You got to do an HBO comedy special if you're a comedian. But there's plenty of comedians who launched their career without that. Andrew Dice Clay, who's a comedian, never could get a Tonight Show, never could get a Letterman. But he did the HBO special and it launched. Everybody has their own thing. I think what I'm trying to say is, yes, never underestimate the power of Oprah. But the fact is, the power of Oprah was behind a thousand guests. And only one person was able to break through and become successful with that power behind them. And that was you. And so I think to say that you wouldn't be successful without Oprah, I would think, and I don't know Oprah Winfrey, but I bet if she were sitting here today, she would say, Phil, you impressed me from the moment I met you. And you were a star when I met you and you're a star now. And I'm just fortunate enough that I was able to work with you and the stars aligned. And, but she, I think she would say you would have been a huge success anyway. It just would have maybe taken longer and maybe a different path, but well, maybe. And, and listen, I'm, um, I was very successful when I met Oprah, just not in television. And you were hugely successful again, building that company, which was why I, um, it was a, um, it was a gutsy move, Maverick. I mean, to do that. Um, well, you took a risk. It was a, it, it was a gut check because I, I had a terrific life, and we had the number one trial consulting firm in the world, and I was living on a beautiful golf course at the Four Seasons out in Las Colinas in Dallas, and my office was less than a mile from the house, and uh, we had more work than we could possibly do. I mean, it was, uh, uh, kids were thriving, family was thriving, everything was working well. There were a lot of reasons, you know, if you say don't fix what ain't broke, there were a lot of reasons to not do it. Um, 
but I was ready for a change. I mean, I really was. I had done it all. I had done, like I say, I'd lived in courtrooms all over the country. I was tired of the travel, and I had done it all. And I was looking for something fresh and new, and this certainly was. And here we are 12 years and 2,000 shows later. It's amazing. And so you knew, again, so you knew right away that things were going to be successful. They were. I have a number of unique questions for you, quick questions. I hope right, you don't shoot. mind. Um, some are uh, more uh, fascinating, though. Some are more entertaining. <laughs> When's the last time you looked in the mirror and had a clean-shaven face? That was at um, Radio City Music Hall uh, because for the first time in 20 years, um, my mustache was shaved off uh, by Oprah <laughs> uh, on live television in front of an audience of 5,000 people. Was that for charity or what? Uh, I don't remember why we did it. Um, and at the time, I was really trying to remember why the hell we were doing this. <laughs> um, but she shaved it off. And I remember I, I turned around and looked at Robin, who was sitting in the front row, and she said, no. <laughs> no. 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 So you grew yeah. it right back. Call makeup. Uh, glue one on. <laughs> till she said, no, no, it's got to come back. Have you ever felt hopeless? No. Okay. Tell me something that happened in your nuclear family that you can tell me about that might be an issue or something that would have been featured on your show in 12 years. Um, probably Jordan getting tattoos. Because <laughs> <laughs> my son Jordan is a rock musician. And he's a great musician. And I want to, you know, I, I listened to a lot of the music and of Jordan's and it really blew me away. And one in particular really, really affected me. Like I was like, I was, I was almost uncomfortable. It was like a, a really phenomenal song called The Broken. Right. And the video starts off with a scene of domestic violence where a woman is running away from a guy throwing glass and things at this woman and she looks in the mirror and she's all bruised and battered and the lyrics are just incredible in the music but i just it, i'm being honest phil it was the first time i remember watching a music video where i felt uncomfortable in my stomach as it started but then as it went on it inspired me and it had an amazing message well, they're really great, and you know he 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 writes lyrics and music both. They're called Stars and Thins, S I N S. Yeah, it goes by, but the the lines in that song, it's like a thousand lives are broken, each one hurts the same. It's getting hard to tell what's broken, the picture or the frame. Amazing lyrics, and yeah, so really, I mean that's pretty insightful for a kid. Uh, but uh, tattoos, because I thought. Um, these are permanent. <laughs> it's going to take, you know, so he didn't, so he, so he didn't ask you. Oh, we know he did. And I, and we went back and forth about it because it, like on our 2000 show, he was on for the first time in forever. And, you know, he's got like a mohawk and tattoos and stuff. And people said, that's Dr. Phil's kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> which to him, they say, that's your dad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I we debated that back and forth and negotiated um, 
negotiated a settlement uh, at the time. So Are you allowed something. to say what the settlement well, was? Well, my settlement at the time was all right. You can you can do you can do something, but you have to agree that it's nothing that can't be covered up by a T-shirt. If you because if you change your mind later, I mean, because I don't care. It's just I don't want him later to go. Oh, you know, I'm now president of uh, you know Wall Street Bank, and I've got <laughs> tattoos everywhere. Uh, that could be a problem. And he says, well, that's not where I'm going. And this is truly who he is. And, and also, but that was our negotiation at the time. And it worked out. Great. You give a lot of advice. What's the best piece of advice someone ever gave to you that you took besides a family member, somebody on the outside of the family? Um, that would be from Oprah. And... She said, use the media, don't let the media use you. And that was really good advice. What's the craziest moment on your show where you got done with the show and you realized to yourself as you sat down in your dressing room, oh my God, I spent my whole life being in control and this person pushed a button in me where I lost control on camera and why is it that I lost control on camera um that hasn't happened uh I tell you what I regret after shows at which I often have regrets it is it, it is seldom if ever something I said it is frequently something I should have said and did not where I sit down and afterwards and said, man, I, I missed a, a, a teachable moment right there, and I didn't say something. I'll give you an example if you want it. Yes, I do. I remember one time I had this defiant girl on. I mean, she was a teenager, defiant, disrespectful in every way, and she kept referring to her mother, brother, friends, he said like two or three times as retards. And that, to me, um, is very offensive. I mean, there are people that are intellectually disabled, and so they have different challenges they have to face. But that is a disrespectful word. And I got caught up in uh, I made a note to say something and not let that blow by me and and then I got into something else and I'd never circled back to it and I was really disappointed in myself for not circling back and making it very clear that that was not okay got it um you you're really great at sports you do a lot of sports you play tennis you scuba dive what moment in sports or what metaphor about sports do you relate to your business life of the dr phil show and what you're doing and the work you're doing well you know i remember when i was playing football because I played in grade school, junior high, high school, and college. And I remember coaches always saying, men, this teaches you about life. 
And I'd say, oh, bullshit. This teaches you about football, and I'm tired. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, but I have to say, in retrospect, I look back at times where it's like, it seems like there's just no way out. I mean, your ass is beat. There's no way out. And the next thing you know, you've scored three touchdowns in a minute and 10 seconds, and you win the game because you didn't give up. I mean, you, I, I, I really did learn that from that, that the harder you work, the luckier you get is the old saying. And I think that is really true. And I always told, told lawyers that I worked with at CSI that this case will be resolved. We will, the outcome of this case will be determined before we ever walk up the courthouse stairs. You win by out-preparing the other side. You win by being honest with yourself. You win by doing what it takes. And winners do things losers don't want to do. And and I've learned that. That's right. And I believe it. It's in my absolute DNA. What's that Bobby Knight quote, that famous quote? Uh, Most people have the will to win. Few people have the will to prepare to win. Exactly. Um. On your bucket list, tell me three things that you haven't accomplished yet that you want to accomplish. Oh, wow. You should tell me about this two weeks in advance. (laughs) Are you kidding me? One is to get through with this damn podcast. Um, That would be be one of them. Um, One would be to take a set off of Kirk Fox in tennis. I mean, seriously, how does this guy show up looking homeless and then just beat your ass like a drum? I mean, seriously, he looks like he wakes up, dives in the laundry basket, comes out dressed and says, let's go. Um, no, it's kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters. He never loses. Exactly. I mean, it's I did not know that because he tells me you're an extraordinary tennis player. Yeah, well. Yeah, he's just doing that to inflate his own ego because he beats me um, <laughs> like a drum. I think I'm like O and 97 um, <laughs> against him. Um, but he is a kid. I mean, let's. I will give myself that. He's a kid, huh? Um, so there isn't anything you want to do that you haven't done, really. Well, okay. Nothing I can think of as I'm sitting here right now, other than the ones I've given you. What's the biggest problem you feel uh, the world has to face as a whole? Is when you're doing the show, you're always trying to resolve these conflicts. Is there one thing that you look at that's more important than another that dwarfs everything else, or is it just? You know, I I do. I, I think you. I I really think people sometimes are so in reactive mode i think you absolutely unequivocally have to resolve to star in your own life think about it there is no other barry Katz. there may be somebody with that name but there is no other you thank god there is, <laughs> uh, did i say that out loud i didn't mean to say it loud. there there is no other you if you don't star in your own life who will Somebody else is going to star in your life? That's crazy to me. And I think people have damaged personal truths. I know that because I had a damaged personal truth. You know, growing up the way I did, my father being an alcoholic and all, 
I had a damaged personal truth. And that's so important because we create the results we think we deserve. And if, if we think we're a second-class citizen, we will generate second-class results. And I think that's true of Betty in Idaho and everybody out there. You've got to believe in your own worth and your own value and star in your own life. And I think that's critically important. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether you're a school teacher or shoveling shit in Poughkeepsie, you have to star in your own life. And I've I've tried to instill that in both of my boys. Um, and with the help of Robin, who, I mean, come on, I'm married so far over my head, it isn't even funny. <laughs> um, those boys are starring in their own lives, and I am really proud of that. Uh, that's that's the legacy I want to give them. Oh, well, you have. Your last book was called Life Code, New Rules for Winning in the Real World. Um, as the world changes so quickly... How do you feel the rules will change? Well, I think they're changing as we're sitting here on this couch right now. I mean, think about it. It's really hard to take back stupid. And used to be you could get really stupid and five or six people would know about it. Now you get stupid. I can go out and do something stupid right now. People are going to be read about it in China before I get home. I mean, the world is changing. We have to teach our kids that if they go do stupid stuff on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and then they go apply for a college admission or a job, come on, those employers, those interviewers are going to Google you. And if you're laying there with slut written across your forehead and two empty bottles of Jack Daniels on your chest, um, that looks different than who you're sitting in front of the interviewer. They're going to hold that against you. We, we have to teach our kids that the world is changing. Information exchange is, is, is happening much faster. So we've got to really be cognizant of the world we live in. It's different. Um, it's really different. And, I, you know, right now, when I grew up, we lived in neighborhoods, right? You could go down and play under the streetlight at the corner till midnight. There was no problem. But now we're a much more transient society. You're, you have people in your lives that you don't know as much about. So you can't give people the benefit of the doubt the way you used to. I mean, the, the world is changing. I'm not a pessimist about it. I'm just saying prepare for it. As long as you know what's going on, you're okay. I was saying to somebody the other day that the one thing that our children don't have is independence. Because when we were kids, like you said, oh, well, I'm leaving and I'll be back after dinner. And you were eight years old and you're riding around the neighborhood and, and you felt safe. Now you can't even be in a schoolyard without looking behind you. Where's my kid? Whatever. So I think that could affect things in the future. And my boys never rode bikes. So this wasn't part of what they did growing up. I mean, my, I was like sewn to my bike. Me too. When I was growing up, it's how you got around. It was what you did. So, but I'm the incurable optimist. I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. Tell me a holy shit moment that would be the highlight chapter of, you know, a book about your life, like something, something that happened to you that no one would ever believe that would blow people away. It might be an inspirational story. It might be something crazy, but something that just <laughs> pulls the curtain back on your life and that somebody could never believe that this could happen to you or you would experience. Well... Uh, it would probably be just something about me, and it is that I am very, 
very shy. I'm a very shy person. I mean, to me, spending an hour at a cocktail party is like the seventh gate of hell. <laughs> I just, I, I just am very shy. If you know, my producers will tell you, you can do a lot of things, but what you don't want to do is leave him out there with nothing to do, because I'd, I, I just, I, I don't like that. I, I. I believe your executive producer, Carla Pennington, yeah, Carla has been Pennington. with you since your very first show. Yep. She would say the same thing. Yeah, yeah she'll tell you straight up. You, you, do, you do a lot of things, but don't leave turn the lights off or something. You don't want to leave them just standing out there. If Seriously, if I don't care how many people are watching. If I've got something to do, I'm fine. But to just stand there with nothing to do is very uncomfortable for me. And um, and my and my crew all knows that. And I got the greatest crew. Like as you say, Carla Pennington's been with me. We've been on for 12 years. She's been with me for 13 because she was our first hire and put the whole staff together. I've got the same seven cameramen I had day one. Uh, you know, I've got the supervisors, John Perry, all, all of these people that uh, were with us in startup are still there today. It all starts at the top. Uh, tell me your biggest disappointment in business. <sighs> Wow, my biggest disappointment in business. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've really been disappointed because I think I I think I always find a way to evolve. If if something's not working, I'm one of those people that believes if something's not working, change what you're doing until it starts working. And so I'm not one to ride things to the bottom of the canyon. This is where I would think one you would say would be one of your biggest disappointments. Because knowing how incredibly loyal you are and how you have this family that works around you, I would think probably one of your biggest disappointments would be a personnel decision where somebody worked with you for a while, you tried to get them to get to the level that you felt that they could get to, but in the end, the decision would have to be made to let them go. I would think that would probably be one of your biggest disappointments because you're so family-oriented with this crew. Yeah, but, you know, I, I think when you choose the behavior, you choose the consequences. I mean, if somebody chooses not to grow into a job or to evolve, that's their choice, not mine. And I'll tell you, when I, when I first went into practice, I was very different. I was a young lion. I was going to save the world and stamp out disease and suffering. And if my patients didn't do well, I took it really personally. Like I didn't inspire them enough. I didn't give them enough information. But yeah, I've come to learn across time, you know, they're ultimately going to make the choices. Your kids are going to make the choices. You can raise them right, but like I say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him float on his back. That's right. uh, they, you know, they got to figure it out on their own in some way. And I, and I let people do that. And I don't, I don't take that on anymore, and I did at one time, but I guess I'm uh, I, I guess I'm too old to take that on anymore. Well, that's okay. All right, a couple more questions. Your proudest moment? My proudest moments. I, I believe you're only as happy as your saddest child, and my proudest moments are when my kids are happy and doing well and thriving. And like right now. You know, Jay has two beautiful children and a wonderful career and a beautiful wife. And that is a, I'm very proud of that. And Jordan is, uh, 
He's in the top 40 right now with a grassroots band. That never happens. Um, and he is absolutely having a ball and in his element, and I am so proud of him. And so those are my proudest moments. All right. I promise this is the final one. So you're, you're, you've been in this business a long time. You've seen a lot of things. What advice do you have for not only a young executive, like the executives that you started with, who've been with you for years and how to move up the chain and the ladder in that world, in your production company, because you are an executive producer and you do run the production company, but also what advice to give to young people who are out there who are might be homeless or might be living in a place that's unsafe or whatever, but they have a dream they want to get to a certain place <clears throat> in their life to where hopefully they could be one of a thousand people that could be chosen out of an, uh, an Oprah show or, or, or start their own company. What is it that you feel they can do to get out from where they are and get to the next level? You, you've got to get in the game at whatever level. I don't care if you're a runner at a studio or for a show or you're an AP or a PA or whatever. Get in the game. I mean, when it comes to this industry, there's New York, L.A., and everywhere else. And if you're, if you're going to make it in this arena, you got to get in the arena. You've got to get in the game. And I believe that value added is rewarded. And if you get somewhere and start adding value, it's going to be rewarded. Um, but you got to get in the game. You got to get where it's happening at some level. This is like you're saving yourself for management or a leading role. Bullshit. Get in the game somehow, somewhere. Get your cards on the table and start playing. Now, I, when do I get to ask you questions? Uh, well, you can if you want. Um, how do you get people to do this? How do, get, <laughs> how, how do you get people to come sit here and 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 have you dissect their psyche and their soul? I mean, how do you get people to do this? How did you get me to do this? Is this some kind of mind control that you have? Am I am I going to walk out of here in a trance? <laughs> I was at the dentist yesterday. They implant something in my head. Was that part of the deal? I thought it was amazing that you were at the dentist yesterday and you were texting me and emailing me like you were like like you physically would come over. I was like, what is he doing? How could he possibly think he well, could come over? I don't tell people. I don't tell people I'm going to do something and then not do it. That's just bullshit. I, I hate that. Well, now you'll tell everybody it, not to do this now. It it, uh, it it killed me that I couldn't get here yesterday. Uh, but, and now and it I, killed you that you got here. But I couldn't come. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I look like a fucking hillbilly. I had a tooth gone right here, and I thought, well, it's probably just radio. Because I've never done a podcast before. I know, and I ever, most everybody that I do is their first podcast, yeah. and after they do mine, it's probably their last. Well, that's a good thing. You do two at once. You're first and you're last. <laughs> no, actually, it's not been painful at all, and I am flattered that you asked me to do it. I mean, all the people in this town you could be talking to instead of me. So I appreciate you bringing me over. Well, I'm honored that you did it. Thank you so much. This was great. It's going to be so inspirational to everybody that listens. And I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much. I don't know so about much. that, but no more questions. All right. As usual, you've been listening to me, Barry Katz, for another episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, 
tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.